This is Luminous, Conversations on Sacred Arts, coming to you from the Institute of Sacred Arts at St. Vladimir's Seminary. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. The music in the background is created by my guest, David Rothenberg, someone deeply involved with the natural world, interacting with it, making music with it, thinking about it. I'll be talking with him about his work and his understanding of music, of animals, nature, and about praise. David is the author of numerous books, most recently The Possibility of Reddish Green, a book about Wittgenstein, outside philosophy, and Nightingales in Berlin, Searching for the Perfect Sound. He's also a recording artist with a number of albums where he collaborates with people and with animals. Musician, philosopher, and professor David Rothenberg, welcome to Luminous. Thanks so much for inviting me, Peter. It's a joy. Um, you're also, I take note, a uh, professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And uh, do you want to just begin by telling us a little bit about that? What do you do there? How is it that an Institute of Technology found you and kind of solicited you to, to, to do your thing in exploring sound and music? Well, there's a whole trajectory there. I mean, like, like most people doing kind of unusual art forms or in between many disciplines, we're never quite sure where to go. I mean, I wasn't sure I wanted to study anything more, whether I wanted to go to any kind of graduate school, but... Uh, before we get back to that period, by the time I did get a PhD in philosophy, which I wasn't sure why I had gotten, I was looking for a job. So uh, like most people in the very beginning of the 1990s, we applied for these jobs and we knew there were no jobs. And so I, I think I applied for like 150 jobs and I got one interview out of that. Mm. <laughs> and I already published a few books and things. It's, nobody seemed to care. I got one interview and one job, which I have until this day. <laughs> and I'm, I'm very grateful for this institution for um, supporting all the different things I've wanted to do. In the beginning, they were interested that I had written a dissertation about uh, technology and nature. And uh, I wrote this after years of working as an environmental philosopher, an environmental activist. And and I, I thought that the world of environmentalists that I was part of, were, they were a little bit too down on technology because I thought there was a side of technology that actually brings people closer to nature. And I thought I would explore that. So this dissertation was a bit contrarian. On the one hand, I talked about things like telescopes and microscopes extended us into the natural huh. world. Mm. On the other hand, I talked about how it's only the technological society that decides to preserve nature and not use it, you know. And right, so right. these two things were part of that. Over the years, I also applied these same approaches to music. And I, I was, we have no music department at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, NJIT. Uh, it sounds like MIT, but MIT is a private university. Ours is a state university, so our school is actually not that expensive as such things go. And we, we serve like the working class population, often recent immigrants or the first generation of people to go to college. Hmm. And so it's different kind of students than I met in my years studying at these more fancy places. But 
like anywhere, there's some good students and a lot of mediocre ones. And there's certainly some, some of the best students anywhere go to NJIT and places like that. And it's actually quite a pleasure to teach people who are like, uh, they're kind of like, they're like regular people. Like, you know, it, it's all news to them, this weird stuff. And, you know, they don't, they don't put up with a lot of, you know, they don't put up with a lot of high-minded, fluffy things. They want to know what's this is good for, how can we use this? And they, they have a very pragmatic attitude, which I think is useful if you're doing yeah, non-pragmatic I, I, things. I, I teach theology to theology students, you know, so I don't have mm. to sell what I do. And I'm often intrigued by the thought of, of first having to convince somebody that what I'm saying and doing actually makes a difference and is worth hearing. But in this case, these guys are all like, you know, oh yeah, teach me more theology. Whereas in your case, um, I'm even, I'm reminded of our, our mutual friend, Laurie Anderson, who for a time was artist in residence at NASA, you know? So I love it when, when technology reaches out to art and says to art, you know, what, what can we learn from you and what can we contribute to you? That That's, uh, do, do you see your work at uh, NJIT in, in that kind of a way, that, that it's a, an interdisciplinary kind of experiment? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, two things I want you made me think of with that last answer of yours. Laurie Anderson also talked about teaching art classes at Columbia and says that she just put up the images of these paintings and then she'd make up things about them and talk. And uh, that's exactly what I think about any time I'm talking about anything, whatever, however much you know or little you know about anything, you put it on the screen or you play a piece of music and you just say something about it and you wonder, like, what am I saying? Am I just making this all up? <laughs> now, my, my advisor in graduate school, Robert Neville, he was dean of the School of Theology at Boston University, where, where I was getting my graduate degree. And he told me in the middle of my graduate study, he says, okay, a philosopher has to have a public life that's healthy. It says, in most cases, we build institutions, like he was dean of the School of Theology. But you could also be a musician. You could be a performer. You want to do something public in addition to your private thinking. Robert Neville spent every Monday working on his own philosophy, a complex system that only he understands. He's still around. He just retired, and he, he published these books, and he didn't care whether anyone read them, whether anyone else understood them. He was doing his philosophy, and the rest of the week, he had this public life. So That's he, great. It keeps you alive. It keeps you on your toes. It keeps you challenged. I had an uh, Old Testament professor when I was at seminary 30 years ago uh, who used to say, uh, cultivate and maintain close atheist friends. <laughs> You know, so you're not just talking in an echo chamber. You know, you're 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 being challenged. You have to explain yourself. You know, and 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 you learn from points of view that that don't take what you have to say for granted. You know. Yeah, you want to be like whatever you're doing. Especially, I feel I'm doing these odd, specialized things that you might explain to people. They might think like that's just so crazy. But if you actually talk about it to people who aren't specialists themselves against just regular people. You, you see that, you know, anyone might get it or not get it. And you, you, it's much healthier than, say, just hanging out with people who are also interested in music made out of natural sounds or, or why go to an artist's colony when you could go to a place full of all kinds of different people and 
and mm. you know, realize you're 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 not so unique as a kind of person. You're, you're, you know, you're, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, maybe both kinds of friendships are uh, and relationships are important. You know, some where you can go and you're understood at half a uh, at half a phrase. You know, right. and others where you have to kind of explain yourself at every mm-hmm. at every moment. Yeah. I mean, philosophers, you know, they often don't have other philosophers as friends because that's one of my, was <laughs> one of my few friends who's a philosopher said, you know, 90% of what philosophers do, the way they talk with each other would be considered by regular people as just being rude behavior. Like, why do you believe that? What do you think that is? What? You, you know, you think that's an argument? <laughs> it's just like what you don't want to do in polite company <laughs> or impolite company. Yeah. You know, listening to, your music i mean you've you've recorded in a lot of different settings and uh you know myself i'm a jazz musician i improvise all the time uh with other human beings <laughs> and so what i hear you recording with uh with other musicians i find relatable on that level as 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 a colleague uh and then of course there's your musical interaction with especially birds and then also with other uh non-human uh, animals you know you've whales insects um and so that's a whole different kind of a thing uh and I, I i'd love to just spend some time exploring with you uh the bi-directionality of this so so you have when you have when you're improvising with humans or for that matter when you're conversing with humans there's there's a sense that we're we're thinking more or less similarly, you know. I mean, we we nobody knows exactly what the other person thinks or feels, but you have some kind of parity of of intellectual sensory world. When you cross species, uh, that changes, and uh, so what what I am experiencing. If and when I am, uh, sometimes I too whistle with birds or whatever, um, and I always just think, so what is what could this possibly be like for the bird? You know, um, I wonder if we could hear um, uh, a moment of of your interaction with uh, with birds. So in that case, so in what we just heard, there's uh, a very clear uh, delineation between what you're doing, David, on the clarinet and what the nightingale is doing. Uh, in other cases that I also love in, in, your, in your film and in your album, Nightingales in Berlin, which, uh, both of which work from your book, Nightingales in Berlin, Searching for the Perfect Sound, uh, I love the moments also where it's, it's more difficult even to distinguish between what the bird is doing and then what's happening at this level of of percussive interaction or sometimes it's with 
you know, electronically generated sounds. Um, I don't know. Uh, enter wherever you want into what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you know, a question sometimes people ask is, why, why would you possibly imagine you could play music with birds? Like, what a crazy thing to even think of doing. They're just birds. And then I could say, well, to even try to join in with, with to hear music in the sounds of another species to, is a way to like to connect to to creation to life to nature that you know if you can get music out of an encounter with other species it's like one step beyond making music with a person from a different part of the world whom you cannot speak with who doesn't know your language this is just demonstrating that music pervades life larger than the human realm it's an it's amazingly wonderful possibility if you can do it Absolutely, um, absolutely. I, I, I'm call. I, I'm tempted to even call into question, though, the word music, because when we say music, we are giving sound a certain value, aren't we? I mean that that it that it has a certain coherence in 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 human understanding. It, it, is not is not music a term that is almost exclusively reserved for for human perception? Uh, you could reserve that if you want, but how do you, we actually define music? You know, I'm sure we've both taken those music classes where <laughs> professor says, what is music? You know, and someone will say, well, all we can say is organized sound, or you can say it's a sound put together, um, you know, where you're paying attention to what's in it rather than what it stands for. It's very hard to define music. You know, I, I'm teaching a class in electronic music now and, and try to get students to be interested in the history of this. You know, I tell them when I took this class, we had to cut loops of tape with little scissors and tape them together and make them go around. They have no interest in this idea. Like, because uh -huh. now a loop is a little little piece of digital sound. And I, I played them Pierre Schaeffer's, uh, you know, uh, Etude from the Sounds of Trains, you know, where he took a record player, sat on stage in Paris in 1948 and made people listen to this and changed the speed and said, this is music. And people were not so impressed. <laughs> so in that sense, he was saying, this is like concert music. I'm on stage performing for you. But of course, much of the music in human society is part of daily life and ritual, part of uh, religious rituals, you know, Mm. You know, military rituals, something you do around the fire, like, like, but we know that something about the pattern of the sounds put together has meaning separate from what they stand for. So like, and if you look at a bird, birds have songs and calls. So a bird call might be something like a blue jay is going, Err! and that's like a call announcing, you know, hey, here I am, or watch out, you know, or, or, you know, chickadees go chickadee dee dee dee, chickadee dee dee dee, and that's like a communal sounds but they also have a song which is just two notes boo boo that's a chickadee song now why do we call that a song well mm. ornithologists say oh these songs are um you know this is where the male birds usually not always they're kind of making a sound to attract females and defend their territory sometimes it's simple like doo doo that's it that's all the chickadee needs chickadee makes 25 different sounds but only one of them is the song it's ah. simple but the uh, a nightingale has a song that takes hours and hours to sing. It's made out of, of several hundred short phrases. They always leave space in between when they go, boo, 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 and then they stop. They wait, then they start again. Boo, 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 
And this is the, the structure of this bird's song leaves space for some other bird to answer. They're extremely territorial. They go back and forth. They do this for hours. Very few birds have a song like that. They're, most birds are more like the chickadee, just doo-doo, the white-throated sparrow. These songs have the same function, right? They're saying the same thing. But what's actually in them is this different structure of sound. And this difference is much closer to music than it is to language. Whoever's doing it, whether it's a bird or a human. Utterly fascinating. So uh, I I, I guess coming back to my original philosophizing about about music, you, you began by calling it structured sound, and then you pointed out to many of the musicians we, we both know coming out of the 60s and 70s, uh, maybe John Cage first and foremost, who, who, who helped to call attention to the idea that any, uh, any sound, ambient sound, etc., can be considered a performance, it can be considered music, which then brings music really, uh, it's in the body of the beholder. Um, isn't it? I mean, so especially when you have recourse to words like meaning, right? Uh, music is sound that is somehow imbued with meaning, but who imbues it with meaning other than the listening subject? Yeah, well, yeah, what John, I mean, John Cage, you know, is, you know, had a huge influence on me when I when I uh, read his book Silence when I was like 18 and then a few years later when I met him and spent some time with him in different places like you know he sort of inspired me like you can do you can become who you need to be by doing it your own way he just described uh-huh. this trajectory where he thought maybe I'd be an architect my father was an architect John Cage's father was an inventor my, I thought well, why don't I be an architect and then John Cage went to study with a famous architect who said, yes, to be an architect, you must devote yourself completely to architecture. And he said, boy, I can't do that. I guess I can't do that. And then Schoenberg said, you, you want to be a composer, you must have an innate feeling for harmony. Kind of a strange thing for Schoenberg to say, right. but you know, it is in his book. If you read the Schoenberg book on harmony, is all about learning all this stuff and then throwing it away. It's like a that's Zen right. Text. That, that was my that was my theory book at New England yeah, yeah, Conservatory. Yeah, exactly. Was yeah, the yeah. Schoenberg book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I had to read that book, and I, I yeah. studied privately with Joe Maneri, who studied at the Me New too. Conservatory. Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> oh my so, so, so Joe Maneri. <laughs> Well, you can tell he had a lot of influence on me being this clarinetist and we sure. start speaking in mm-hmm. weird languages. And, and you know, he's the one who said, you got to read this and then, you know, look, read the end, you know, throw it oh, all away. Isn't that just incredible? Right. You know, and then uh, so we could talk about Joe Maneri in here. But but the yeah. idea is that, uh, OK, so John Cage, everyone wanted total devotion, you know. Lots of musicians say this. Isaac Stern in that film where he goes to China, you know, he says, yeah. uh, ah, if you could even imagine one day, just a single day without music, then you shouldn't be a musician. And I'm saying, boy, I could use some days off, you know, I could yes. involve many days without music. And I'm sure John Cage would say the same thing. Like, like these pronouncements of total devotion do make a lot of sense. But on the other hand, there's a side where um, you have to be open to possibility. So John Cage is famous for making a piece that's totally silent, but that's not really what he did most of the time. What right. he did is listen and teach and learn and make his own way of combining all this stuff together. One of the best things about him is he told stories about all his friends. He didn't just say, I did this, I did this, I am everything. 
I am everything. Mm. It's like, well, my friend did this, you know, and you know, he did this yes. interesting thing. Let me tell you this story. And so one thing he also said that, that really struck me is he said, okay, composing music, performing music, listening to music. These three things have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. <laughs> what did he mean? You know, at the time he was spending a lot of time with DT Suzuki, a Zen master yes, who also I yes. believe was teaching at Columbia or somewhere. He was like a Zen master introducing Zen to the West, so he knew how to talk about this stuff. And then, uh, but I think what when I think about what that means, it means like, well, who decides what music is? You know, different people do. Like, on the one hand. Uh, you know, the composer of a traditional kind of music is writing the music and he's got to get someone else to make the music happen. And either he tells them what to do directly or he writes it down and they interpret what's there. Often hmm. the composers are often are performers at the same time. So then they're telling it different ways. And, and um, you know, John Cage was a traditional composer. He would write things down. Let's see what, what could be done here. He worked in the context of like classical music you write it down make people do things so but the performer has to take this and make it come alive where's he going to perform is it going to be in a in a hall where you're treated very respectfully everyone's quiet they only clap at certain points you know not certain times it, it, music stops you're not supposed to clap other times you're supposed to clap the people are supposed to know that or is it going to be performed in uh, you know some noisy bar some club where people are talking maybe they're paying attention maybe they're not maybe it's in the pandemic world where nobody knows where to perform is it going to be outside from the back of a truck like the new york philharmonic or hmm. i played a concert outside in someone's backyard this is kind of you know amazingly new because you know we hadn't been performing anywhere in months you know so the performers decide that and then the listener has to decide like boy what is this this isn't music or it is music this isn't music and i mean usually i tell people you know if they want to know what music is like it's when someone someone tells you it is whoever it is this is music now take it as music so if john <laughs> cage says be quiet and listen to what's around you just take it as music what happens so if I'm listening to insects singing, I said, consider this as music. Is it right. background music for your walk, for your dinner? Is it, is it something you sit quietly and listen to? Is it something to join in with? Recently, I've been working on this film about insect music. We've just filming outside, you know. For all the stuff I write and talk about doing this, it's, I don't spend enough time actually doing it. It's so fun to go outside, play live with these insects and both play wind instruments like I play and play electronic sounds where we kind of remix the insects as they're there. And it really starts to change what you think music is because insects, you know, even you yeah. when you when you yeah. mentioned birds, whales, and bugs, you met, when you said bugs, you laughed. I heard you laugh because you yeah. thought ridiculous. This guy's even playing music with oh, bugs, but, yeah. but they're actually the original, you know, source of our interest in rhythm and trance-like repetitive sounds. These Katie dids are going and they're all like putting together this whole sound of, of like overlap, and you know. This is immediately rhythmic and musical. You know, I'm, well, you know, my students are the kind of students who'll say, if it doesn't have a beat, it's not music. I says, uh -huh. okay, then you're going to like bug music because that's where the beats <laughs> come from. And, and they go, what? You know, you know and, and then we, um, we talk about that idea. And so, uh, but, uh, but when doing this live, it was just so fun to actually do it, interact with these sounds. And you never see them when they're singing at night. Right. You get too, you right. get too close to them, they'll stop, you know. Yeah, it's a, oh, I have so no much doubt sound. that that's music. Yeah. Right, yeah. I, I, but it, I like the way you, you come back to this uh, idea that Cage and others 
have to summon our attention. It's it's a personal decision then to reckon this or that sound as music, and that that gives my my mind and my processing mechanisms the the permission to 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 draw meaning from it, and to even you could say take take pleasure from it or to draw uh, allow me to draw into a space of of reflection on it and it and it's it's my decision you know the cicada didn't change its mind the bird didn't change its mind it is the human who who invokes uh that by choice sometimes other times just by virtue of being bowled over by the beauty of a sound but it's the human that, that wherein one can speak of meaning uh and and if we associate music with meaning then um is music again something that is within the province of 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 exclusively of human um life and and perception i would never say that i mean look to think about these 17 year cicadas they're they're way better at counting than the than my neighbor the great French horn player who plays in the Lion King and has to count for like 27 minutes and then come in and play, <laughs> boo, you know, he's got to do that year after year. But the 17-year the, the cicada literally has to sit underground and count for 17 years before he knows when to come up. Yeah, that's a lot of rest. So, so that's a lot of counting. How can this yeah. little insect possibly count correctly? Yeah, there's and, no uh, doubt about the the prodigious. So they are, that's it's a musical yeah. thing. This insect is doing something musical. He has to well, know we when to climb it as musical. out. Well, we interpret it as a cicada. We give it names. We interpret it as an animal. All the, everything is human interpretation. Sure. But I think even as a human interpreter, we can look at this phenomenon and say, well, we talk about something. Like it's music that the people making sounds, they have a kind of purpose, but the purpose is not encompassed in the the, the structure of the sound. So that you know, you know, if if the uh, you know, if this kind of music is to be played at fu- you know at funerals like taps, you know, da 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 da, you know that okay, this is the funeral music, but the music, what's going on in the music is this structure that's independent of its function. The function mm-hmm. doesn't describe what's going on. You see what I mean? This is like right, a sure. philosophical idea. So the cicada, the periodical cicada, you know, you know, one species goes. Pharaoh, it's called the Pharaoh sound. Okay, and so it's trying to attract a female cicada. The females don't have this sort of drum membrane on their bellies that can vibrate and make this sound. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but th- that sound, the structure of it is separate from the purpose. It's like a, a sonic structure and it's repeated over and over and over again. Mm. to get its meaning across things that are closer to language you say it once you get the picture you get what it is you know like and we get bored in music you don't get bored hearing the same thing over and over again the way it expresses its meaning is different than linguistic meaning so when you talk about like some people say uh, only humans have language but if you try and define what language is it's pretty clear that it's not true Whatever, however you define what language is, there's some animal that can do that with its sounds. Yeah. There's you some know, there things, a... I mean, if you want to be exclusively human, the one thing that we, we don't know is, is it's probably only humans that reflect on all this stuff and wonder what it all means. But actually, if we wonder what music means, we actually have no idea. We're very bad at figuring out what these collections <laughs> of notes actually mean. But we still do it. We still know they mean something. And I yes. think in a in sense of us making music, hearing it, 
taking it seriously. You know, we are doing the the cicada is also doing that, even right. though its brain is much simpler. One I thing like you can that. be sure about these these like birds and and even insects, they know what the right music is. They've done it for millions of years. We're never sure of anything. We constantly want to change the music. Is it in tune? You know, are we tired of this song? You know, you know, we're we're humans change ourselves constantly that's what it means to be a human being we're on the way somewhere mm, else you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know who we credit with the origination of that idea but it's uh-huh. certainly in, in a lot of philosophy the humans are incomplete they must keep going on and uh, progressing yeah. somewhere we have no idea where it is if it's anywhere at all that we're going with this changing species of which we are a part we have no idea like there's no goal to this but it just keeps changing um, I want to go back to something you said earlier that really intrigued me, that, that there's a difference in birdsong between calls and sounds. Uh, and calls, and, it, calls and songs. And songs. Yes, yeah. yes. That's, yeah, yeah, I mistyped. <laughs> calls yeah. and, and songs. And so, uh, you know, when I, was, when, I, when I listened to your music, and uh, especially the Nightingale's album, and, and I watched the, there's a lovely... 50 minute film i'd love to call listeners attention to on available on vimeo called nightingales in berlin it's uh uh, it's a film that um where a lot of the kinds of things we're talking about today are uh are voiced and uh, as questions and uh with propositional answers and and just a lot of of music uh with birds and as you were going i was thinking of of these questions we're talking about now so uh I am interacting with a bird from my own perspective uh, with my instrument or my voice uh, or my iPad, and I'm hearing it as a musical interaction. Whereas for all we know, you know, the bird is thinking, you know, hey, that guy with a clarinet wants my tree, you know, <laughs> or wants my mate or whatever, you know, the, 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 the bird is hearing it not as music, but as a, as a territorial uh, infraction or, you know, a challenge. So, uh, again, once you're crossing species, you have less and less guarantee that, that there is a kind of a mutuality of purpose going on, isn't it? Uh, in some ways, but actually, you know, nightingales, in, particularly in Berlin, have been, have been studied for many years. And in Berlin, a good place for, for scientists and biologists and neuroscientists in particular are interested in uh, what these birds are doing. We know some things about them, so I can tell you a little bit about what we know. For example, they're extremely territorial. They'll migrate to Africa in the winter, and they'll come back to the same tree. So they'll go to Africa, different places. They'll come back to the same tree. They live up, up between seven and nine years. They'll come back to the same tree. So if I go to Berlin, I'm pretty sure this one tree, this one area of several trees, you know, I'm going to find this one bird that that is a good singer. Or I like the way he sings, you know. So we know that that happens. And in studying their behavior, they come back and they, in the beginning, they have sort of three musical strategies you can see them doing. In the beginning, they're t- defending their territories. They tend to mm. interrupt each other. And, and by the way, as I mentioned before, the Nightingale song is very special. The Nightingale performance is very special. They go on for many hours, but they leave space between the phrases. Uh, yeah. there, are no, there are no Nightingales in North America, but you can hear mockingbirds 
do very complicated things. In fact, right now I'm working on a project with mockingbirds I can talk about later. But they don't stop and listen to other mockingbirds. It's unclear if the virtuoso mockingbird cares one bit about anyone else, any other mockingbird singing. They're extremely territorial, but they fight. They chase each other, which nightingales don't do. Nightingales are musical competitors. Mockingbirds fight all uh-huh. the time, but not with this long, complicated song. We have no idea why they evolved this super complicated long song. They don't go back and forth. So, so nightingales are unique among the world's birds in leaving space for either other birds to join in or humans. Okay, so what happens? You know, more than you want to know about this, perhaps. But at first, they're interrupting each other, defending their territories. So, well, once the territory is established, they leave more space. One sings like. Boop, 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 boop. And then the other is in between. It's like a ritual. They're no longer competing. They're just announcing, I'm here, you're there. I'm here, you're there. You know, they just do it for hours. Now, when the females actually show up, which is a few weeks later, they get all flustered and the songs get kind of messed up. You can hear it happen. I've heard this happen only once. A female nightingale is nearby and then they, this song gets a little flustery, like he forgets where he is, you know, and uh, it's pretty funny to hear that. And then, and then <laughs> this um, is so interesting because yeah, this yeah. addresses exactly what I was hoping to hear from you. Is, um, you know, yes, uh, interspecies. There is perhaps less assurance. We know mm. what's going on in in the mind of a bird, and yet you're you're, uh-huh. you're telling me that there is some assurance. You know, we we can sense that one call mm. is territorial, one is more mm. self assured and secure, uh-huh. and another is sexual or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, you know, but these birds are interested in sound. You see it around here. Around here, you know, like many of us, I spent way more time just home the last few months going nowhere. All of my Mm. nightingale concerts were canceled in Germany. And so I'm just sitting here and just around the house, and I started to hear more things right here, like uh, a catbird, which is a related species to mockingbirds and nightingales. They have very crazy sounds they make. People don't really like them, so they don't realize how interesting they are. It's a whole structured, crazy thing that because it's so weird, people don't study it or admire it the same way they admire these other things. But this one catbird would sit in this bush next to this table where we'd have dinner outside, only sing during dinner, come out when we're there. He's like making a whole you know, performance only when we're there. If you go away, he wouldn't be there. So he's probably, you know, again, singing a song, defending a territory, kind of angry with us being there. But then I started uh, playing live with him and kind of interacting. And, you know, I, I, you mentioned the iPad. The iPad is a good instrument. You can carry it around. It has software that can just sample sounds. You can instantly play them and kind yeah. of in a very fluid way, whereas if you use the computer, which can sometimes be more precise, of course, it is just a computer, but because the screen is this way to interface with it, you can, you know, there's this very fluid, you know, apps you can play. And so I'm kind oh, of playing and remixing yeah. him. I can send you this catbird music, which no one has heard. And it was yeah, totally crazy. Awesome. And, the bird, and the bird is going, you know, you know, and it's really what happens as a human 
just like if, uh, you know, like any of us know what happened when, you know, in my own history, when I decided to learn about gamelan music or shakuhachi music mm-hmm. from Japan and mm-hmm. Indonesia, I would change my sense of what music could be. If you take the music of these other creatures seriously, you'll change your own sense of what music is, what music can be. It's like another style, another aesthetic with its own rules that you, mm-hmm. you, we just hadn't decided to take seriously. And this is something Charles Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man, which has two chapters on birds he says birds Uh have a natural aesthetic sense they appreciate beauty and that's why they've evolved beautiful feathers beautiful songs because they they they're in their very evolution they appreciate beauty if you choose not to believe in evolution or believe in evolution but also believe in this the spiritual guide behind this then god then god provided the world with um, with uh, beauty in all these creatures and you can of course as many people do believe in god and evolution there's so many scientists yeah. and others who do and then god oh, sure. made this all possible and it's mm-hmm. all there and you know don't think they're opposed to each other like the Kansas boards of education does you know yeah. <laughs> like of course they could go together they, they have different criteria for truth different ways of getting yes. meaning out of the world and that's why in um, in, in the beginning of uh, Nightingales in Berlin, there's a quote from the, the Persian poet Sadi who, who says, you know, how can I be silent when birds chant praises? You know, I, I singled out that quote as, as something I would love to talk with you about. Um, I want to talk about beauty and praise uh, in a minute. I just want to go one more, uh, take, you, take you down one more rabbit hole when it comes sure, to... Yeah kind of the human-animal uh, asymmetry. Mm-hmm. Um, so your, your most recent book is about Wittgenstein, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's the yeah, possibility least, of reddish-green? Yes, at least the most recent one to come out. If you think okay, how many I'm sure years, you've got something else in the ye- pipe. No, no, I was just thinking how many years it took me to write this book. It is like the <laughs> oldest book and the newest book. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh-huh. I know how that is. Uh, when, I, when I heard that you were writing about Wittgenstein, I was so interested because when I was reading Nightingales in Berlin, he kept coming to me, just that famous line that, that people know from Wittgenstein, namely, if a lion could talk, we could not understand him, he said. And you know, this is a way in which Wittgenstein calls into question the, uh, uh, the reliability of our comprehending things in the same way even between human beings and 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 that's even kind of exaggerated when it when it comes to you know a, a lion you know so i think i think one of the things he's suggesting is like if i want to know what a lion thinks and even if i were to become a lion i wouldn't know because it would still be my consciousness and my frame of reference and not the lions that is inhabiting a lion, wherein, whereas we have entirely different uh, points of references and and uh, and and consciousness. Even the word "think" is is a human sort of word about what's going on. And so, I'm so interested in that. If a lion could talk, we cannot understand him. You know, so to to kind of put a challenging question out there, could could we say with Wittgenstein, if a bird could talk, we could not understand it? Um, and yet you're you're suggesting we we can in some way understand. Yeah, I used I used that quote in an earlier book in Why Birds Sing. 
in, mm. in the beginning, I, I said, you know, Wittgenstein said, if a lion could talk, we would not understand him. And I said, come on, you know, when a lion roars, don't we think we understand that? Don't we immediately get understanding? And, and uh, don't we, isn't it at the same time a cop-out? You know, let's find out what the lion's thinking. We know so much about, about <laughs> how others think. You know, even Thomas Nagel, who, say, who wrote, uh, you know, a different kind of philosopher, maybe, who wrote, you know, we would never know what it's like to be a bat. I think if you asked him today, he would, he would disagree. He would have changed his mind. If you, and you should interview Thomas Nagel, by the way, if you read okay. his recent books. You know, he's, they're all about spirituality, what's wrong with science. He's like gone and about face about these kinds of things. And of course, if a lion could talk, we could understand him or her. Of course, th that we can understand these animals, whatever sounds they make. We try, you know, of course, at the same time, what troubled Wittgenstein, we might not even have any idea what any other human is really thinking because we don't know our own thoughts. Of course, we're trapped by the limits of our language defining our worlds. But we, you know, we change these limits, we explore. And we, um, you know, in this book, The Possibility of Reddish Green, which I recently published about Wittgenstein outside philosophy. The cover is this. What's the what color is the cover of my book? You have one there. The color is supposed to be reddish green, yeah, a color it. Wittgenstein said did not exist. Yes, there it is. Yes. You know, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> Take <laughs> so, that, Wittgenstein. <laughs> and so the whole thing is like, why doesn't reddish reddish green exist in the theory of color? They don't mix. You know, I see reddish right. green outside my window. It's on the book. You know, right? In a conceptual way, it doesn't exist, but in a kind of phenomenological way or right. poetic way of course it exists exactly. of course it's, we it's, understand these these things the book is about how Wittgenstein you know is much more poet than philosopher the fact cool, that people cool. outside philosophy are so touched by him nice and and uh, this is what really matters and and philosophers you know this book I I think it's there's things in there I was writing in graduate school in the 1990 or so <laughs> over the years I tried to get it published you know it's it would almost get published by university presses, and then they'd send it to a Wittgenstein expert who then would say, this man has no idea what he's talking about. It's complete <laughs> rubbish. It's just not what this guy's about. <laughs> when I sent it to my advisor, the former dean of theology, the, gr the great Robert Neville, he said, okay, you've got the, you know, he says, you're onto the important stuff about Wittgenstein. I said, oh, thank you. you know, uh, but I, but nice. I know he's, a, he's an anti-analytic philosopher. He's a process philosopher. He likes the opposite of what, at least the field of philosophy, thinks Wittgenstein actually said. But he wrote in these aphorisms, it's all so poetic. We have to take that, you know, to heart. And, you know, it's, I thought it was important that people who are not philosophers got so much out of this guy's thought. And uh, that's really important. Who is philosophy for? You know, it's for yes. everyone. You know, mm -hmm. in the in the in the course guide at Harvard when I was an undergraduate, you know, I was trying to say, what am I going to study? I, I always remember that in the description of the philosophy department, it says philosophy answers questions that can be answered no other way. <laughs> so that sounds good. Okay. That being said, I never I never took an undergraduate philosophy class. I tried, but I didn't like them. I, I felt that these famous philosophers one after another we're just telling a lot of bad jokes in class and I, I thought they i just couldn't get into it until later i realized that i was interested in these questions and then in the end i feel like you can do philosophy through music through art through all these other things mm. i don't know i'm still yeah. in between all these different things well it's, that describes a lot of yeah. what you do um yeah. and i, I think mm. a lot of uh -huh. 
uh, musicians are and and uh-huh. other artists are unwitting uh-huh. philosophers and other way and the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to take a, a a brief break here, maybe hear something from Nightingales in Berlin for just a few mm-hmm. seconds, and then move over to this uh, language of of praise. Mm-hmm. So I want to come back to a quote you lifted up just a moment ago from your film, Nightingales in Berlin. And it's uh, the quote, how can I be silent when the birds themselves chant praises? And personally, I could relate to that so well. Um, Perhaps even rather than assuming that animals are getting something from us and our music and our involvement... You know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they're also they're doing perfectly fine on their own. You know, as as you point out, they've been singing this for millions of years, um, and the idea of interpreting that music as a kind of praise uh, is is resonant to me, certainly in in a Judeo Christian tradition. You know, where the Psalms are constantly saying, you know. Um, uh, praise the Lord. Uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, and praise the Lord. And uh, animals, creeping things, and flying birds. It even says, um, and it's, and it even says that the stars praise the Lord. And and so it's this unwitting praise. And 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 the implication seems to be that it's all the more beautiful praise because it is unwitting. It's not like a conscious decision. Oh, let me now decide to utter praise as if God needs my uh, my praise and my affirmation. No, the, the animals are, are doing it just by doing what they do, by, by, by being, by singing, and the stars do it by orbiting. And, <laughs> you know, uh, so I could really relate to that idea of, of, of birds chanting praises, and I wonder how, how you uh, interact with that. You, you chose that f- phrase, obviously, as an important way to launch your film. So what does it mean to you, the pr- idea of animals praising? Well, this notion that, uh, you know, I was particularly uh, impressed by that quote from the, the great Persian poet Sadi, who, who is uh, Persian in Iranian culture, is, is, is put together with Hafez and Rumi as these great poetic voices of the whole people and of history. And I knew there's so many nightingales in Persian poetry and culture. Like they talk about this bird all the time. That's where the nightingale is most appreciated, this part of the world. And I knew that there were, you know, I, I, you know, I they use various poems from Hafez where he talks about the nightingales are drunk, you know, wine yes. red roses appear. The, the nightingale in Hafez is always singing to the rose, you know, and there's a whole other myth about that and the thorns and et cetera. And, but in, in Saadi, who's lesser known, there's this sense that um, how can I be silent, suggesting that the birds are praising God through their songs. 
well, I have to join in. I cannot stay away. I cannot just listen passively. I have to be part of this. So it makes playing music with birds a kind of spiritual quest. You too are trying to reach the divine through this process. How wonderful. So it's an invitation to join. Yes. Right. It's interesting. I have to, I have to tell this story that... Uh, so about a year ago in Finland, I met the, the, one of the greatest Iranian musicians, Kayan Kalhor. He plays the kamanche, you know, this kind of fiddle-like instrument. And, and I'm saying, talk to him. I said, you know, I, I wrote this book playing music with nightingales, and it begins with this quote from Sadi: "How can I be silent when birds chant praises?" And I tell it to him, and he scowls for a moment. He goes, "No." There is no way that Sadi said anything like that. I've oh. memorized everything. <laughs> I've memorized everything he's ever written, as any good student of Persian culture must right. know everything. Of course, he never said that. I said, no, 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 wait. Let me check on my phone. I have the original here. I can show it to you. I've worked with Sabi, and, and you're no yeah, Sabi. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I go through the phone. So, so he wasn't expecting that. So I pull it out. There it is, written in Farsi, the exact quote. He goes, oh, I see. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. I said, oh, is it a bad translation? He goes, no, no, no. Translation is perfect. You know, yes, you are right. There it is. Oh, cool. That's great. <laughs> and so when the book came out in German, I said, listen, can you print this in Farsi also? Like, just in case, you know, so we, um, <laughs> you know, there are no doubts here. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so, so it's there. It's there. They said, yeah, it looks beautiful. We're putting that right there. So I really think that is, um, you know, I'm not going to, just that this, this 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 sort of encompassed, you know, reason why I'm doing this, rather than you know, you know, there are people who say, you know, uh, you know, you're 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 harassing these birds, you're hassling our birds. There's even some people came out of an apartment building saying, stop, you know, you know, you're ruining our birds. They're singing so beautifully until you showed up with your instruments and you're, oh, you're, you're, you're ruining this moment. And then there's a whole uh, little cartoon of that you can see on the website because it turned out that this this couple, you know, in their, in their 70s comes down and it turned out actually that the husband had read my book in German, Why Birds Sing, the earlier one. And he starts getting more friendly and his wife's still really mad at us. You got to get up, we're going to call the police. And, and then... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's kind of like a whole incident. And <laughs> and it ends up the birds are the ones being taken away in handcuffs, right? That's the way the right. story ends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, following on this language of animals as praising God and nature as praising God, the cosmos is praising God. There's a, there's a lot of moments in, in scripture as well as in kind of the early ascetical literature that uh, speaks well of animals uh, because they are pure. They're unselfconscious. They they simply adhere to what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, there's a lovely line uh, from a, a a desert ascetic named Xanthias, and he says, uh, "A dog is better than I am, for he has love and does not judge." Right, so like you know, it's, it's this pure love, and it and it's absent of judging, and and we all know when we look into a dog's uh, eyes that there is this kind of purity there. Um, so so there's a sense of of I wish it were even more often than I have seen it in in Christian reflection, but there's a sense of reverence for the animal world for for its for its purity. Um, that leads me to kind of ask. Um, a question, you know, David, your work to me as a person who, who traffics in <laughs> the spiritual and the sacred um, 
it's part of my day job as well as uh, my inner life. And and I, I can't help but interpret what I'm hearing you do and what I'm seeing you do in terms of of sacredness or in terms of the spiritual and in terms of the relationship between God and the world and all that. And so I, I, I thought to ask you what your entry point is uh, uh, to words like uh, spirituality vis-a-vis your art. Well, yeah, I, I think that probably doing this music with beings with whom I cannot communicate any other way, you know, birds, whales, bugs, that, that this is probably the most spiritual thing that I'm doing, is, is reaching for this kind of meaning that I cannot quite describe, and, and feeling, you know, like Sadi feel, felt that it's part of this grand praise of creation. Like, this is probably the most spiritual thing that I'm doing, rather than any kind of anything out of more organized religion, you know, like most suburban kind of not very religious Jewish kids. I had to go to Hebrew school and get bar mitzvahed <laughs> and I, I wasn't really into it. It seemed a little fraudulent. We had to pretend to be able to read Hebrew and do this performances. Like, why weren't we really talking about what it meant? It didn't seem so meaningful. Mm. On the other hand, the organist at the uh, Temple Israel in Westport, Connecticut, he was also the organist at the Unitarian Church, which was next door. <laughs> And I said, I believe he's still there. He's an incredible musician. And not only that, but we got keys to the Unitarian Church, which is a famous building in Westport, Connecticut. This kind of very modern, curved, wooden church. We'd go in there and rehearse late at night with my band. And we would just go, he'd just go in and make music and play with the organ. And it was all this very spiritual thing. So you used that word spiritual. You said like, you know, that's as spiritual as it gets for you. And, uh, you but clearly that, use that word with a kind of a valence, with a, with a certain uh, potency. So what, yeah, then I'm going, I'm going to on the story further. Then at the same time, yeah. you know, when I was in high school, we were playing in the Unitarian Church. I also um, got interested in these kind of people on spiritual quests, like Gurdjieff and Uspensky. Mm-hmm. My friends and I, we were obsessed with these books. This idea. You know, these people were looking for some place beyond and in between the different religions. René Domal, you know, a follower of Gurdjieff, wrote this amazing book, Mount Analog. We were all like hikers and mountain climbers. And this mm-hmm. is about this, this ultimate mountain that had to exist somewhere on the planet simply because we imagined it. It's a famous uh, unfinished novel of spiritual... Uh, directions. Mm-hmm. And so we were interested in all these things. They didn't sort of connect too much to organized religion. Later, I got interested in Zen and the poetic side of Zen. I never really practiced it in a rigorous way. I did write a Zen poetry book based on the Blue Cliff Record. And so I, I'm interested in these spiritual you know, questions, but like not, I don't feel I have the discipline Mm. to practice the way you're supposed to practice, except maybe this discipline of listening and joining in and trying to reach beyond into these, what's going on with these creatures that, that I think that uh, I I do find when I do it, I said, it feels like this, this, this spiritual activity because you're, you're touching the unknown and finding this meaning that cannot exactly be pinpointed or described. I can't say what's going on in this music. You know, part of the time I do try and analyze it and think, but the primary task is just doing it. And in, in making this film, 
and doing this music that you, you mentioned, I really wanted to film people who would, would sing or play along with nightingales for the first time. Uh-huh. Because I couldn't recreate my own experience of doing that, but I could show what happens when someone else does that. Right. What, what's you know, so when we have like Lembe Locke is singing this song she had already written, Dreaming Slow, together with the birds. It's this amazing moment in the film. And, and, and I just I was so glad we filmed that. And then we could, uh, you know... Every time we did it, maybe it got a little better as a performance. But the first one, the first time, which is in the film, has this incredible moment of like wonder. Like you're touching something beautiful and a little bit beyond our immediate understanding. Dreaming slow. there's definitely something happening there. Mm-hmm. So as I'm hearing you use the word spiritual, I, I'm, I'm really trying to listen between the words and between the sentences for, for what you mean by it. And I'm, I'm, can I check with you, is part of what you mean by spiritual something that is uh, beyond reach and somehow inexplicable, not graspable, something bigger in a sense? Is, is that part of what you're meaning by that word yes so you're reaching on for this this sense of of you know interconnectedness and value in 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 nature and the universe Uh beyond our mundane like experience of what we think we're doing and and, you know i often thought think of uh maybe you've seen Werner herzog's film grizzly man where he talks about you know it's 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 probably the best nature film ever made because he talks about the impossibility of making a nature film and mm-hmm. basically basically he comes across the true story of a guy who lived with the grizzly bears in Alaska Tim Treadwell and he was eaten by a bear he died yes. and left yeah. all this material and Werner Herzog said I must go figure this out but in the course of his own self questioning um about this, you know, he, he, he says, you know, I don't see any emotion in the bear. I see nothing but the relentless cold hunt for food. You know, I see nothing. There's nothing spiritual in nature. It's just raw, you know, pra- practical, you know, yeah. competition. I said, boy, you know, but that's what he says. But on the other hand, uh, you know, um, that's not what he does. You can tell that Werner Herzog is uh, very much, you know, touched by nature and he's made these great things yeah. about human and he's he's uh, he's great you know he's really wrapped in the midst of this and uh, you know i was talking about this herzog stuff and i was doing this reading in berlin to this woman who was in the audience i said yeah you know this guy he says like he doesn't care anything about nature but i think he really does and then she said yeah you know i i think i know what you mean because you know he is my father <laughs> what oh i see so so then i met uh, the daughter of Werner herzog in berlin and lately we've been collaborating across the continent so the latest project i'm doing is with her and she is kind of like has this Werner herzog kind of quality <laughs> this intoning voice together you know, with uh you know 
you know, t- t- kind of like um, turning this iconic story into something like real. These are actually people and yeah. they're thinking different ways. So it's actually, you know, I, but, I, yeah. I, I didn't see Grizzly Man, but I, I, I've seen a lot of other Herzog. And I, I remember yeah. the, uh, from uh, The Burden of Dreams, which is kind of the, the <laughs> exactly, kind of making right, yeah. of Fitzcarraldo right. movie. Yeah, and, yeah. and he says, and I quote, uh, birds don't sing; they they screech in pain. And That's so right. He, he yeah, almost right. seems committed <laughs> right. to this very cold and uh-huh. uh, very mm, brutal right. understanding of nature. Whereas what you seem to be saying is that his heart, maybe not his brain, but his heart, is attuned to something more beautiful and and. Uh, forgiving <laughs> in a well, way. It, it is true that the songs of some of the birds in the, in the Amazon where he was making this, these films that he's talking about there, Fitzcarraldo, they do sound like they're screeching in pain, yeah. but they just have really harsh songs. Like there's a bird <laughs> called the Screaming Pitta, which is an amazing <laughs> sound. But I don't think, I think he's incorrect. They're not screeching in pain. They just have a song that's unpleasant to our ears, but you, it's pretty well, easy so cool. to you get see, into you, it. You know, you, right. Yeah. So, yeah. so in a way, uh, a lot of what you seem to be wanting to do is, is you're interacting with birds as a human, but you are trying to maybe take that one step further, um, and you're not doing it as an uncritical human, right? So Herzog can say, oh, that sounds like a screech in pain, so that must be what the bird has in mind. You and the folks who are studying nightingales in, in Berlin, et cetera, are saying, well, okay, this might sound to me like one thing, but we can tell from other evidence that it is not a screech in pain, but a a, a mating call or a uh, an attempt at at expressing something beautiful. You know. Well, I think Herzog is also a bit like Wittgenstein. Like he's just saying that. He, you know, as Wittgenstein says, the if a lion could talk, we would not understand him. He's trying to provoke us, just like Herzog is going to provoke us into. Uh-huh. Um, you know, he made the best nature film ever that shows it's impossible to really film nature without um, yep. without being caught up in human senses of the world by having this uh, by doing something special with it with it with the image. Yeah, you know, he's and, recognizing and the puzzle. Yeah, and Wittgenstein yeah. writes uh, thousands yeah. of pages on the impossibility of communication. You know, exactly. So there's right. that irony <laughs> built in. in all well, of let these it be things. said, he didn't want any of it published. You know, it happened okay. after his. He would might be horrified at what people have done with his ideas. He published one book during his lifetime, and the rest he would prefer to have like. Okay, so a last question. Uh, yeah. Since since we're on about uh, in this podcast series, we're on about sacred art. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel in your work, especially with um, with birds, let's say, because that's what I'm most familiar with, that when you enter into that space, that you're entering into what might be called a sacred space, and if so, what is what does sacred mean um, for you? Well. Uh, Yes, I think that it is, you know, when any musician is playing with their heart and soul and, 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 and actually creating these works that they can't really explain or understand, it's always a sacred space when it works. I think that's a sign of, of uh, 
you know, you, m- many musicians talk about touching something that's divine beyond, you know, the, the ability to know what it is. And you can know the notes, you can practice the notes, you, can, you can't explain how to make the music really soar. And I think it's the same, maybe especially performing with, with sounds of other species. Uh, many people, when they hear the songs of whales, you know, are moved to tears just hearing this sound. And yet we don't know, of course, how the whales are hearing it. But it's no accident that it's moving to us. That isn't just a random thing. Yeah, you know, I think I think it's yeah. really important, and you know we shouldn't deny that. You know, there's no reason. For example, you know, Katie Payne, the great pioneer of whale, you know, whales, whales song research and the study of elephant communication as well. She says, you know, why why would we possibly think is something objective about saying that animals don't enjoy singing? You know, why, why, why do we think there's something objective about saying only humans enjoy it? It's nothing but prejudice. We don't know what their inner lives are like. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, in recent years, it's discovered inside the brains of whales a certain kind of neuron that previously was only found in animals mm. believed to be capable of, of a higher emotions like mm. primates, you know. But it turned out humpback whales have the same kind of neuron called a spindle neuron. Now, mm. that's just a little scientific tidbit you could add to this discussion, but sure. we don't know. But, you know, the fact that we are moved by this sound is not it's no accident. It, it's not more objective to say that, oh, these animals are not. It's just a relentless hunt for food. It's just an emotionless life in the face of, you know, n- you know, you know, the, the battle for survival, like uh-huh. your average yeah. nature film <laughs> says. It's all the battle for survival, a competition, you know, that, and nor is it, is it, it's too easy to say we just see or hear what we want to see and hear. It's not right. all perspective. Right. There's really something true out there. There is truth. There are facts. There are are yes. facts about the music of nature and and the difference between music and language it's not all opinion and so i i do think that you know the more we listen to to and find beauty and meaning in the world the, the more that world comes to have this value that is sort of larger than us we're a small part of the world it's a spiritual experience for a hum- humanity to feel humble in the face yeah. of so many other species so many creatures so much else going on we're just one small part of it but we do have the ability to be interested in it to expand our sense of what music is and reach outward into this world of possibility and that's one of the great things about being human we shouldn't lose that just because we are very pragmatic we need to save the planet we're worried about our Ourselves. We shouldn't lose the, the fact, the real fact we can expand our, our uh, consciousness into the world larger than us. It, it's kind of a combination of feeling insignificant and yet significant. Yeah. I mean, so we, we pale in comparison before the expanse of the cosmos, and yet we have some kind of a role, <laughs> you know, to. It, even to interact with it in a conscious way, uh, as you're describing. Yeah, I think you you hit it right exactly there. We, you know, we are both significant and insignificant. You know, mm. it's not it's not in our greatness and our power to transform the environment that they, we are this amazing species, but in our ability to look beyond our own narrow perspective, we can see the world the way another person sees the world. We can understand the way a lion sees the world, the way a nightingale sees the world. We can do that because that's what human beings can do. We should use that possibility. David, 
thank you so much for being with me for this hour. Uh, gotten so much out of it. Uh, you, I really urge our listeners to tune into Nightingales in Berlin in its different uh, capacities. There's a book, there is a film, and um, there is a CD, there's an album. You can find it on Spotify and other streaming services. Um, the book, The Possibility of Reddish Green, Wittgenstein Outside of Philosophy, has just appeared. Uh, and just very recently, your album, In the Wake of Memories, has appeared, which looks to be an extremely moving uh, project. Um, yeah, that's just out this week. Yes, yes. So that's something for everyone to please Google and uh, tune into and and explore. Uh, you've really opened up a lot of horizons for all of us today, David, by, uh, by this interaction. I'm really grateful for your time and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much for inviting me, Peter. It's been great to have this conversation and I look forward to hearing the final results. This podcast and the Institute of Sacred Arts at St. Vladimir's Seminary is supported in part by the Henry Luce Foundation and by people like you. Find out more about this podcast and our guest, David Rothenberg. Go to instituteofsacredarts.com slash luminous. Luminous was recorded at Surge Audio online, surgeaudio.com. I am Peter Buteneff. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>